Open your Bibles to Mark 10, and uh, we're going to read through this portion of Scripture, and then I'm going to pray, asking for God's help. When we left this story, we were actually coming into a really significant moment, and, and we are almost to what we sometimes call the, the Passion Week. That's the final week of Christ's life. We're moving closer and closer to Jerusalem, and, and you're going you're gonna to hear it in just a moment when I read through it. Jesus says, we're going to Jerusalem, and here's what's going to happen. And Mark takes the last 11 chapters of his gospel, plus a little bit here in the 10th chapter, to lay out those significant events. It's almost like he's slowing the story down now because almost every word that Jesus speaks, every miracle he performs, every, uh, every, every sermon he preaches or, or ministry uh, touch that he has is so significant and loaded with purpose. Your Bibles are open, Mark 10, uh, look at verse 32, we'll read to the end of the chapter. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, 
let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Let's pray. Our God and Father, as we open your holy word this morning, it is again with expectation and great hope that you will speak to us that you will clear away all that wrong thinking that so often fills our heads and our hearts, that you would confront the cultural ambitions that we carry in us, much like disciples James and John, that you would help us to see our Lord as he is, the one who at this point was resolved to accomplish the mission you had given him. He knew its cost, but he also knew what would be accomplished. That great outcome where not only he would rise from the dead, but he would secure the salvation of millions from all nations and all generations. How thankful we are that we stand before you today with the hope of the resurrection. We have laid loved ones in the grave, some even recently, and it's a continual sorrow to our hearts. But what joy we have to know that that grave is not the final word, The resurrected Christ is the great word of life and hope for us. He knew that he would not only accomplish resurrection, but that he would accomplish our justification and peace. Then, oh, how we need peace. So many of us are weary with the hustle. Life is hard. The demands are great. The responsibilities are overwhelming. We're pressed in and pressed down from every side. But we come to you on this day and we gladly surrender our wills and our dreams and ambitions to you and say, you are king, rule our lives as king. Would you relieve our hearts of that selfish ambition and self-preservation that just dogs us day after day? Help us to see, Lord Jesus, that because you are king and we are your servants, the great responsibility is yours. So we ask that this would be an hour of hope and relief. I pray that you would bring salvation, that you would bring joy. So for these requests and many others that are being offered to you right now, the great hope is that the Lord Jesus himself perfects these prayers even as he prays for us. Thank you. It is in his most holy, saving name that we pray these things. Amen. Are you tired of the hustle? I made mention of that in my prayer. I think some, it's something that all of us feel the weight of. Life's challenging. It's hard. We live in a world that, for many, is, is framed out in what I'll describe later in the message as more like Darwinian thinking. Uh, you even he- hear the term zero-sum game, and that means some win and some lose, and all of us hope to be in the winner's category. Sometimes that makes us rather ruthless and heartless even, down to the fact that we'll kind of look at the losses of others as more opportunity for us to win. Jesus operates in a totally different worldview and value system. And one of the things that he continues to do is just upend our thinking. Now, we're looking at the disciples in particular in this passage, and then the crowd that gathers at Jericho, and there's some of those same cultural values that emerge, and we're going to look at those in just a minute. But, but the big point that Mark has brought us to again, and this is the third time that Jesus has made known the particular plan, is that he's going to Jerusalem to die and rise again. 
It's a really big point. And though he's going to talk about true greatness and humble service, and he's going to perform another miracle that's going to have a profound impact upon that crowd, we must not miss that central to Jesus, to his life, to his purpose, the mission for which he came is unfolding before us. And that is Jerusalem was the place where he would offer himself as the once-for-all sacrifice. All the miracles, all the sermons, all the private lessons would amount to nothing if he does not go to Jerusalem and accomplish these things. Now notice his resolution. He knows the cost and outcome of of his mission, and yet he is resolute. Verse 32 tells us they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. There aren't too many occasions where you see Jesus out front or, or that an author like Mark is making a note of this. But here he is, leading them as a good shepherd does, not to slaughter, but actually to blessing and salvation and ultimately resurrection. One commentator writes, here is the powerful Savior who leads his people with purpose and direction. And Mark says that those who were with him were amazed and afraid. What amazes them? Well, his resolve. Jerusalem is a dangerous town for him now. He stirred up the religious establishment. They know that there is a death threat against him, that there are plots being uh, unhatched at this very hour. So they're amazed that Jesus would go right into the teeth of that, and they're afraid. They're so closely associated with him that it's not only a risk for his life, it's a risk for them too. But here's Jesus, resolute, going to Jerusalem, And then notice what Mark says in verse 32. It reveals that Jesus knows the cost of his mission. Taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. And then he unfolds it. Rejection, betrayal, condemnation, crucifixion. It's both Jew and Gentile who will collaborate in this horrific hour of murder and conspiracy representing the the nations of the world who hate this Christ sent from God on high, evidence of the rebellion of our hearts. Jesus knows the cost of his mission. But did you notice as we read through that little portion, you come to the end of verse 34, and these glorious words show us he knows the outcome of his mission, and this is the why. After three days, he will rise. That's such a great word. The Apostle Paul explains to us in 1 Corinthians 15 that great chapter on the hope of the resurrection and such a comfort for those of us who've lost loved ones. What does happen, as a matter of fact, to those loved ones who die and, as the Bible says, are asleep in the Lord? Well, among other things that Paul is describing in that chapter is the great work that Jesus has done through resurrection. And he says in verse 20, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And he's not saying it matter-of-factly, he's saying in truth. So he's writing this post-resurrection. Christ has been raised from the dead, and then Paul describes him as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, which is a beautiful phrase for those who've died in faith, just fallen asleep. Like my dear mom, who passed away 21 years ago now. Think of her as sleeping, not just undergoing the, the biological process of decay. Yes, her physical body underwent all of that, but, but her body sleeps, awaiting this great moment where she will be resurrected. See, Jesus is the first fruits. 
And, and you think some of you are gardeners or you have a little fruit tree in your yard. And, and when the first fruit appears or the first blueberries come on the vine, you're all excited, not just because that little blueberry is going to taste good, but it means more blueberries are coming. And that's the whole point. So when Jesus goes to Jerusalem, suffers all of that, and ultimately rises from the dead, he's the first fruits of those that sleep in faith who will be resurrected from the dead. So that's the outcome of his mission. He knows it. You know, Paul also talks, though, in Romans 4, verse 25, that the Lord Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. And that's gripping to us. Because that says he was delivered up just as he told the disciples what's going to happen. Because we're sinners. But then Paul goes on to write, and raised for our justification. That is, with his resurrection, that positions God the Father to make a legal declaration over the sinners who caused the death of Christ to say, you are now righteous, to declare you and me perfectly righteous. He removes our sins, and then he declares us to be righteous. And sometimes I say, but I'm not righteous. And he says, I know, but I've still declared it, so live like it. Paul goes on to say, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. So not only is our hope of future resurrection tied to the resurrection of Jesus, our justification is tied to the resurrection and our peace with God. How do you know that you can be at peace with God? Jesus rose from the dead. Some of you aren't at peace with God today. You're hustling, spiritually speaking, to try to make him happy, to satisfy him, to Check the right boxes to fill in the blanks, so to speak. And he's done everything that's necessary for you to be at peace with him in Jesus. Oh, the glory of a Savior who is resolved to go to Jerusalem, who knows what he will face, knows the cost of his mission, but also knows the glorious outcome of his mission. Can you fathom for this moment, make it this personal, because you need to, we have to. When Jesus went to the cross, he knew a little assembly of people would gather on a snowy January morning in Riverton, Utah, and sing praises to him. Some because they've known the power of his forgiveness and salvation. Others because they're looking for it. Some are close and some are, are on, on a pathway there, as it were. But he knew of you and he knew of me 2,000 years ago. And he said, I've got to go there because those people need to be justified and brought to a place of peace with God. What a savior. Now, the next little portion, though, exposes what I would call the countermission. And it's not just unique to James and John, it's a human thing. We carried it the same kind of countermission into this room today, and, and we're going to call it specifically selfish ambition. Matt read the portion of Philippians 2. And, and as, we, as we read that passage of Scripture, when, when, the, when Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, every one of us should kind of groan a little bit and go, man, I'm so full of that stuff. Yeah, well, so were James and John. And isn't it interesting that, that on the heels of this third powerful prophetic word where Jesus says, we're going to Jerusalem, this is what's going to happen to me, I'm going to die, third day I'm going to rise, it, it's almost like these guys are, are oblivious because they got their own agenda working. Look at verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Oh. And so he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? Now mark that. That's the first of two times in this passage. He's going to ask somebody else that same question. Very different responses and kinds of answers there. But he's gracious enough and patient enough to let these boys roll with it. 
And so they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your glory. So they're getting it when Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, my kingdom is coming, I'm going to do things to bring in the kingdom. I mean, they're all about that. And they know how kingdoms operate. When kings take the throne, there are a couple of key positions of power. Right hand and left hand. Well, who doesn't want to sit right next to Jesus? I mean, let's not be too, uh, too, too hard on these guys. I mean, I want to be as close to Jesus as possible, too. And so I wonder, what is at the root of this request? And the Bible doesn't tell us, so we should be careful. Maybe it is a ploy for power and influence. Maybe it is motivated by some some sense of of self-fulfillment or even self-preservation. I I don't know. Mark doesn't tell us, and and we can fill in the blanks to, uh, to some extent. So let's not be too critical and judgmental of them. And then I also think, too, it's an understandable request because up to this point, you know, ordinary working class people, which James and John are, part of the fishing industry on Galilee, ordinary working class people had no voice. They were occupied by Rome at that particular time. So, I mean, nobody was inviting them to come support them at the next local election. There were no elections. Religiously speaking, they had no voice. The Pharisees and Sadducees had that whole system just locked down and under control. And now you have someone emerge who you know is sent from God, who has divine authority, miracle-working power. He preaches and teaches in a way that nobody else does. We want to be a part of what he is going to be doing. And, and, and some of that thinking in their own souls may be, now we're going to actually be able to have power and influence like we've never had because of our relationship to Jesus. So that's what I mean when I say it's understandable. It'd be like one of us suddenly having the opportunity to join the president's cabinet in Washington. I mean, would you turn that down? Some of you are like, for sure. Others would be like, "Mm, no, I think I'd take a seat at that table. And I think I might want to take a seat at that table because we've all had these, these conversations. I've said stuff like this from the pulpit before. You just wonder, does anybody have common sense around those tables? Can someone actually say, well, you know, the ordinary person who had Cheerios for breakfast today would say, so maybe James and John are thinking, what an opportunity. But it does reveal selfish ambition on their part, doesn't it? It also reveals a a kind of ignorance. Look at verse 33. After saying, what do you want me to do for you? Then Jesus says to them, verse 38, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they say to him, we are able. Clueless. We are just like these disciples though, aren't we? We so often think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. We're fairly impressed with our own zeal and commitment, our own capacity. And I'm confident that God lets us reach the end of our resources and experience failure So we'll come to grips with the fact that we don't know as much as we think we know. We're not as powerful or savvy or creative or able as we think we are. He wants to bring us to a place where we say, you know what? We need Jesus. And sometimes that happens economically and sometimes it happens physically and sometimes it happens relationally. Sometimes it includes all of that mess. But if it brings you to a place where you come before Jesus and a little preview, as blind Bartimaeus does, and just say, have mercy. You are perfectly positioned to be near this king. But right now, these brothers are looking 
for position. They think more highly of themselves than they ought to think. They're probably even thinking along revolutionary lines. And again, we've, we've covered enough of that even just a few moments ago that, you know, this would be an exciting moment. I was thinking of how, when I was a teenager, the fear that the Russians would invade and take over our country was real. There was a popular movie in those days called Red Dawn. Some of you have probably seen it. It's a, it's a good one uh, by the estimation of red-blooded American boys, at least in my generation. And so the Russians do, in fact, invade, and a handful of teenagers from a little Colorado mountain town single-handedly save you know, a good portion of those that they know and love with deer rifles and pickup trucks. That's kind of a brief summary. And, and you laugh for good reason. It makes a great story. And there actually are stories in the course of history where people with very few resources but just a whole lot of courage and resolve do extraordinary things. Now, that was just a movie. But, I, you know, in my mind, I think of something like that. It's almost like James and Don are like, yeah, we are ready to go. Let's take on Rome. And let's kick out these, you know, Pharisees. Jesus, we're with you. And Jesus is not looking for disciples to be with him in that way, with that ambition in their hearts. They don't really understand his mission. And we know that in part because of the effect of their ambition. It doesn't inspire. Look at verse 41. It stirs up indignation. So now Jesus is having to deal with, a, with strife. His 12 disciples are stirred up because two of them stepped out of line, said, hey, give us those positions of power and influence, the other 10 here, and probably some of them are indignant because they didn't think of it first, and they're going to be you know, not as close to the throne. And, and you just think, oh, guys, your Lord is on the way to Jerusalem to do the greatest work in the history of the universe, and you're quarreling and quibbling about who's going to sit where in the kingdom. It's like a parent's nightmare on a road trip. <laughs> it is profoundly more grievous than that, though. But here's Jesus, undeterred, and he doesn't blow his stack like lots of dads and moms have done. Don't make me pull this car over. You know, that whole routine. No, he actually stops the journey, apparently, calls them to him, as verse 42 says, and then speaks a powerful word. And what he shows them, what he teaches them first and then will model for them is that humble service is essential to the mission. He says in verse 42, he calls them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles do two things. First, lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. And what Jesus is doing is not just exposing the, the, the personal ambition, selfish ambition of James and John. He's actually exposing a cultural ambition, I'll call it that way. Because he's talking about those who are considered rulers. And it is interesting that the, the way the terminology is used here, he may be actually uh, uh, making a subtle dig at the earthly authorities who think themselves to be really powerful. He doesn't tell us who considers them to be rulers. Maybe it is they who consider themselves to be rulers or just the, the, the community around them allows them to serve in that capacity. But he uses a term that almost seems to indicate they don't really have the kind of power they think they have. But he does go on to say, they lord it over them and they exercise authority over them. And he uses two terms in a way that indicates what these rulers are doing is to 
overpower or subdue those who are around them. There's opposition here. And the second term in particular even has some some meaning loaded into it of exercising hostile power. His whole point is that the world establishes power by conquest. And so we're back to that that Darwinian thinking, really, that life is a zero-sum game and, and, and it's eat or be eaten. It's win or lose. It's get ahead or fall behind. Everything is a power play, from politics to business, from sports to the local PTA. It's a fight for control and dominance. I was thinking of some of the wisest advice I'd ever been given in, in backpacking. You know, when you go out in the woods, especially in bear country, you have to take precautions. Nobody wants a bear in their camp. Um, and especially out west, back east, it was black bear, which typically mind their own business. I mean, there's only been like one or two killings, maulings, well, more maulings, but, you know, deaths by black bear attack in the east. I, I don't know the statistics on mauling, so. <laughs> Death is not your worst fear when you're hiking in the east. Out west, grizzly bears... They scare everybody. And so you take all kinds of precautions. You hang your food up in the tree or you get one of those bear containers that is, you know, bear proof and you cook away from where you sleep. And I mean, you, you have strategic thinking and, and then you have that fearful thing of, of, well, what do you do if you actually confront one? Do you lie down and play dead? Do you try to make yourself bigger and scarier than the bear? Do you run away? Do you climb a tree? And someone said, you will never outrun a bear and that's not what you should worry about. You just need to be able to run faster than one person in your group. <laughs> so rule of thumb is backpack with people who are slower than you. <laughs> now we laugh at that, but the, some of those disciples are indignant because they feel like someone's about to outrun them and that they're about to lose. And this is not at all the kind of operation that Jesus is running. But our culture feels it. And think about this morning, those things that you believe you need to feel secure, safe, stable. A Harvard Business School professor, Michael Norton, asked 2,000 millionaires two questions. First, how happy are you on a scale of 1 to 10? And the second question, how much more money would it take you to get to a 10? It turns out that, quote, all the way across the income spectrum, basically everyone says they'd need two or three times as much as they have to be perfectly happy. Now, for those of us who aren't millionaires, we hear that and we go, you got to be kidding me. But for those of you who may have crossed that threshold, you know exactly what they're talking about. And God knows exactly why they answer the way they do, because he never intended for a fat bank account to be the source of satisfaction and pleasure and security. Every good gift comes from God. And if God gives you a boatload of money, you praise him for it. You use it wisely. You use it generously. But you don't put your trust in it because money makes a terrible God. And you know what? Positions of power and influence, they're terrible gods. Jesus is trying to draw the attention of his disciples back to him. And so he goes on to establish a tactic. He's he's confronting what I would call this cultural ambition 
that says, I got to get ahead. I've got to preserve and protect myself, my interests, and I'm willing to do it at the expense of others. That's why these disciples are stirred up right now. He goes on, verse 43, it shall not be so among you. Earthly rulers use their power to, to conquer. Earthly rulers are willing to hostily take over. It shall not be so with you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And the first term he uses here is the term that we also translate into the word deacon. And I've shared with you before that some tie it back even to the idea of what a table waiter does. And others have said if you, if you break it down into a literal uh, translation of that term, you'd find it refers to one who labors in the dust. It is interesting that it is the technical term later in the New Testament for the office of deacon. Deacons are those who serve alongside pastors and elders in a church, uh, but they don't actually carry authority in the church. If you look at the New Testament, it's just not there. Deacon, you must be a dusty laborer, servant. So then he goes on in verse 44 and says, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. What a paradox. What a, what a seeming contradiction here that Jesus would say, you want to be great, then serve. You want to be first, then make yourself a household slave around the place. A slave is someone who, who's in a permanent relation of servitude to another. We're not talking about someone who hires himself out for an hourly wage as in our economy. We're talking about somebody who is owned and possessed uh, by another person who has no will of his or her own. But the only will that matters on any given day is the will of the owner. And Jesus is saying, you want to be first? You need to develop a slave's mentality that says, I, I'm not carrying my own agenda into this setting. I'm just here to serve others. How counter this is to the way so many of us think presently. And then, oh, how powerful. Look at verse 45. Even the Son of Man, and he's referring to himself. It's his favorite title that he uses. This is the Son of Man that Daniel prophesied would come, who, who would be given all authority from the ancient of days. Even the Son of Man, the one who has all power in the universe, came not to be served, but to serve, to be, to be a deacon, and to give his life as a ransom for many, the innocent one for the guilty ones. Ah, oh, we're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to show you what humble service is. I'm going to show you what true greatness is there. Oh, but before we get there, let me show you what it looks like right now. So read on. Because these are not random stories tied together. Verse 46 says, they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. So this is common practice then, it's common now. You just need to think in terms of when you're coming off I-15 and you're sitting at the light and you're waiting to turn on, you know, 106th as we do when you come home or one or the other, you know, you, you see the beggars. Maybe they're holding a sign, head down, disheveled, dirty clothes. This is a beggar. Verse 47 says, when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And at its fundamental uh, core meaning, mercy is a, a favor. I'm in need of kindness. I'm in need of something that I cannot do for myself. Oh, Jesus, I need your compassion. I'm in unhappy circumstances here. 
And we understand that, don't we? Look at verse 48. Many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. Why would they do that? Probably because they, like we, think that Jesus has more important things to do. And some of them were probably thinking, come on, Bartimaeus, you are such an annoyance. Get a job. Whatever was behind it, they rebuke him, which seems like such a heartless thing to do, a man who needs compassion, and that's what he receives. But he cries out all the more, and Jesus is about to show us exactly what he means when he says, you must become the servant of all. So for a moment, he pushes the pause button on the eternal agenda and objective of going to Jerusalem, and he pauses, and he stops and says, call him, because this man apparently is repeatedly calling, crying, son of David, have mercy, have mercy, have mercy, have mercy. And they called the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And doesn't that give you a little shiver? Because can't you see yourself in blind Bartimaeus? I do. Man, I need mercy because I'm not the husband I ought to be, I'm not the dad I ought to be, I'm not the pastor I ought to be, I'm not at all what I should be and neither are you. And there are moments where I just feel like my life is, has been reduced to beggar's status. And that's a beautiful moment because God says, you really are. You have no righteousness of your own. You have no resources of your own. Uh, as we were seeing a little bit, Jesus is all. Take heart. Get up. He's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, remember I told you the same question appears twice? Here's the second occurrence. What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, just let me recover my sight. He's not bringing a big power agenda. He's just bringing his need. Every one of us is sympathetic with this man, aren't we? Vision is such a precious gift. Age takes its toll. I look at some of you young people sitting here, no glasses on your face, no contacts on your eyeballs, and I think, your day's coming. <laughs> we don't know how he lost his sight. Maybe he was born with some kind of defect. Maybe it just deteriorated over time. Maybe it was disease. Maybe he suffered an injury, but the blind man receives his sight. The kindness that he is desperate for is exactly what Jesus does for him. And the great king, who's on his way to lay down his life as a ransom, stops the whole program and miraculously heals this man. And I submit to you, in this context of this chapter, the miracle itself is not the great event. The humble service of the glorious king is the great event. The same culture that gets power by conquest thinks it has more important things to do than take time for a beggar like Bartimaeus. And the acquisition of power is often more important than that kind of attention or care, but not for Jesus. And some of you think that Jesus has no time for you, that your need is not of any personal concern or interest to him, perhaps because it seems too great, too sinful, too ugly, too black to you, or perhaps because it just seems so inconsequential in light of eternity. But my friends, this king, this savior, this great redeemer named Jesus delights to humbly serve the beggars of the world. And if you're looking at your life this morning saying, I'm in need of mercy, he's the one to come to. And in many ways, he stands before us today saying, what do you want for me to do for you? Now, if you bring some big power agenda to him, 
you see what he does with that. He'll redirect your soul and, and try to get you to repent of your mission and humble yourself and embrace his. But some of you are in need of the kind of mercy that Bartimaeus needed. And Jesus is more rich in mercy today than you are in your need. You know, when these things become true to us, we stop the hustle. I don't mean we stop working hard in life. We stop the kind of hustle that says, it's up to me. I got to protect self. I got to preserve my agenda and my self-interest. And, you know, if, if, if I don't do this business, it's just not going to work. And if, and if I don't, you know, solve my kids' issues, they're not going to get solved. And if I don't, if I don't, I don't, I don't, then it won't, it won't, it won't, it won't. That's exhausting, isn't it? Come to Jesus. Come to him today with needs, big and small. Is it a family need? Come to Jesus. Is it a business need? Come to Jesus. Is it a, a, a spiritual need, a question that you just can't resolve in your own heart? Come to Jesus. The irony to me is that the disciples are actually the blind ones in the story, blind to the mission, blinded by their own ambition. And had they come in humility and even said, Lord, you've told us three times now you're going to Jerusalem to die and rise again. We don't get it. Help us see. Oh, he, that'd have been a little different conversation, but he's getting them there. And you know what? He'll get you there too. So even you who are a little stubborn or cynical in this day, still feeling a little too, you know, like, no, I can handle this. Okay, but when you're ready to finally lay it down, Jesus will be there. And you need him as much today as you will need him then. You just don't see it yet. So we'll keep trusting him and his great love and his great ransom work that he did won't be diminished even though many of us, like James and John, will continue to work our own plans. What do you want Jesus to do today? Would you bow your heads with me? Let's just think about that. What needs to happen for you today? And is what you think that needs to happen what Jesus would say needs to happen? Where do you need mercy? You say, I need mercy just to believe. Great, ask him right now. I need mercy to repent of my pride. Perfect, ask him. I need mercy to trust him with really hard circumstances. I need mercy to endure a difficult season in my marriage. Great, ask him. Say, I need mercy to see this gospel stuff you keep talking about here at this church. Ask him. And secondly, can we resolve as a church family, as people who are learning to love one another, can we just resolve to be great as Jesus has defined it? We need a church full of deacons and slaves. People will walk through the doors each week and say, okay, Lord, I have no will or agenda of my own. What is your will for me today? Who do I need to speak to to encourage? Who needs a hug? Who needs a, a prayer? Who needs a helping hand? How can I serve? Can we commit ourselves to being that kind of a church family? In many ways, I think we're there, but I, there's always room for growth. I know that personally, and I'm sure you feel the same way. Father, as we consider your word, first of all, thank you for the Lord Jesus. Oh, Jesus, there's no one like you. And we want to know you, not just so we understand all the facts or have the history all worked out in our head of your life. We want to know you in a personal way. Many of us have been in that journey for a while, and, and others here right now, 
I believe your Holy Spirit is calling to join this life of faith. But for all of us, we need to know Jesus as he is and serve him because of who he is. Some are conflicted right now because, as we're really honest, Lord, there are other things that, in our hearts that we love. There are experiences of this world, pleasures, business goals, relationships. There, there are other things that we love, and if we're really honest, and I'm going to be honest too, Lord, and just say, I've got competing loves in my heart. So I know in the room, many are struggling with that too, but we renounce every rival love. And we surrender ourselves to you and say, be God, be King, be Savior, be Lord. Because we don't want to miss any good thing that you've prepared for us as we seek to know you. Thank you for your patience, your love. Thank you for the ransom that you paid. Thank you for the resurrection that you accomplished. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen.